Praise the Lord. Amen. So good to see everyone in the house of the Lord this morning. Gathered together in the presence of Almighty God. Amen. And that's what makes it so special. I love spending time with all of you. But spending time with you in the presence of God is all the better. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. He has some amazing things in store for each of us today. Each and every one of us stand ready to receive all of God's good things today. Amen. He loves all of us. He wants the very best for us. Will you receive that this morning? Amen. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. You're a mighty King, a glorious Savior. We heap glory, honor, worship, and praise unto the Most High God today. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are my King, my Lord, my God, my Savior, my Redeemer. You are the lover of my soul. You are my exceeding great reward, my hope, my joy, and are become my salvation. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are my all in all, my ever-present help in time of need. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I thank you, Lord, for all that you have in store for each of us this morning. We're expecting awesome things of an awesome God today. We're not going to receive anything of man, because man has nothing for us. But you, Lord Jesus, you are our answer. You are our help, our hope. Hallelujah, Jesus. I pray, God, that your spirit would have free reign in this place, and that your great name would be glorified in our midst today. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Amen. Before we get started, uh, just a couple of quick announcements. We'll do a more formal array in the second service. Uh, but just a couple of things really quick. Uh, one, uh, we are going to have a missionary service this Wednesday. Uh, it's going to be the same format as the last missionary service. They are from a sensitive nation, so we will not announce the name or the location they're going. Uh, and the service will not be live streamed on Wednesday. So uh, understanding that, if you want to hear the missionary, you'll have to be present. So, And the reason for that is... is uh, They've made it plain to us that their their visa would be in jeopardy if anyone there found out. So <clears throat> that's how we're going to handle it. So please be here on Wednesday uh, if you can at all make it uh, because it will not be live streamed. Also, uh, we're going to have a baptism today, which is awesome. <clears throat> uh, Michael, amen, amen. Michael is very insistent. Uh, that he be baptized as soon as possible. Uh, it looked like it was going to be in jeopardy. The, the parents initially were not uh, too keen on the idea, but uh, apparently he would not take no for an answer. And so uh, <laughs> they called me yesterday saying that it would be fine uh, to do that. Hopefully they're going to be here. He wants them here. So in any case, uh, that's going to happen after the second service. So, amen. I'm looking forward to that. <clears throat> Continuing on with our study on the doctrine of God, His nature, uh, we left off, we were starting into God's attributes. We talked about God being love. 
and that if we cannot love ourselves, uh, we can't know God because God is love. That's the very definition of who God is. That's, that's a central attribute of who God is, is love. And so if we are going to be Christ-like, if we are going to reflect his nature, we have to love as well. The problem is we can't do that naturally. Uh, we must first receive the love of God ourselves. And because we receive his love, then we can turn around and love one another. We can even turn around and love ourselves as God loves us. Not a narcissistic love, but a love that reflects the character of God. Amen. So God is love. We talked about God being just. He is perfectly just. That kind of goes along with his omniscience and his omnipotence because he knows everything and he can do everything. His judgment is always perfect. His judgment is always in line with his character. Amen. So when God judges, we can trust that judgment as being perfect. You know, parents, we try to judge uh, actions of our children based on what we know. The problem is, of course, that we don't always know everything. In fact, I don't think we ever really know everything. And so we just have to make the best judgment we can. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not. God is not like that. He always has all the information. He knows the thoughts and intents of our heart. His judgments are always perfect. God is righteous. He's always right. He's always correct. He is what everyone ought to be. God's character then becomes our definition of what is right. We talked about God being holy, terribly holy, perfectly holy. When Moses saw the, the back parts of, of God, his face shone so much so that the, the people of Israel couldn't stand to look on his face. He had to wear a veil. God is altogether holy. And because he is holy, we therefore ought to be holy as well. Holy in our thoughts, holy in our words, holy in our deeds. And again, that's not something that we can attain to naturally. But God imparts His holiness to us based on the finished work of Jesus at Calvary. Amen. So, continuing on, just a friendly reminder that uh, the totality of an infinite God is way beyond our ability to understand, to comprehend, to describe. But God has revealed those aspects of Himself to us as He deemed necessary so that we could have a relationship with Him, so that we could worship Him, so that we could serve Him. Everything that we need to know about God to do those things has been revealed to us. Isaiah 40, verses 25 through 28, gives us a real brief glimpse of this aspect of God. The prophet says this, To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things, that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. Amen. So to try to grasp the totality of God is simply beyond us. 
the entire Bible could be filled with phrases such as this and more, more direct than this. And it would fall far short of who God truly is. As eloquently and as beautifully as we can describe someone, our minds, our language, indeed our very nature will fail to grasp the minutiae of who God is. Now having said all that, we are able to understand, and indeed it is necessary for us to understand, those aspects of God that have been revealed to us. He wouldn't have revealed them otherwise, except that they were necessary for us to understand. Our understanding of creation depends on our understanding of its creator. Our ability to relate to God depends on us knowing about who God is. Our worship and praise to God are predicated on our understanding of God's character and God's attributes. Acts 17.23, Paul is preaching to the Greeks on Mars Hill. He says this, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. So we find that for all people everywhere, it is important to know who this God is. Moving on. God is majestic. Psalm 93 and 1 says, The Lord reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also established that it cannot be moved. Isaiah 2 and 10 says, Enter into the rock and hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty. 1 Chronicles 29 and 11 says, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Amen. So God is majestic. Majesty, of course, refers to ornament, splendor, honor, grandeur of a king, or to boast. God is royalty. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the one who sets up kings and pulls them down again at his will, at his good pleasure. If someone rules today, it's because, either directly or indirectly, God has set them up. God has set them up. If you disagree with the ruler, that's fair. That's fine. But just understand, they carry the authority of God. And that's an awesome, awesome thing. This does not refer to God's authority or power necessarily, but to the glory and majesty that comes with royalty, the pomp, the pageantry. The glory of His majesty. Has anyone ever been able to enter into the office of the President of the United States here? Has anyone ever taken a tour of the White House? Has anyone ever met a sitting President of the United States? I had the pleasure to do that one time. I was in the command post at Minneapolis, and they set our, uh, they set our command post up as kind of a uh, a secondary fallback position in case something happened to the president. He was, uh, it was uh, George W. Bush at the time, and he was touring. He was trying to get reelected, so he flew in on Air Force One. 
And so the Secret Service were there with their dogs, you know, going through everything, and the entire thing was sealed off. I was the only one in that whole building, except for all of the security guards, posted layer after layer. It was kind of a cool experience for me. And I got to meet the president. I got to shake his hand. I got to speak with him for a little bit. And let me tell you, the man himself, I mean, he's kind of short, and he's, he's, he's just a guy. But because he was the president and because of his entourage, I was a little nervous speaking to the President of the United States. I was a little bit awed by that. And I have to think that if I was awed by that guy, I mean, I'm not slamming him or anything, but he's, if he were just by himself on the street, I wouldn't think anything of him. But because of his office and because of his entourage and the, the whole setting, it was a very awe-inspiring experience. I have to think that if a man can assume that level of, of majesty, grandeur, awe, how much more a holy God, how much more an omnipotent, omniscient God who is clothed in majesty, how much more majestic is He? God is majestic. God is good. Mark 10 and 18 says, Jesus said unto him, the rich young ruler, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Psalm 53 and 3 says, Every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Romans 3 and 12 says the same thing. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So what does it mean to be good? Merry, pleasant, desirable, in order, usable, morally good, pleasing, lovely, kind. But goodness, as described to us in Scripture, goodness as applied to the character of God, only God is good. People are not good. People can be nice. People can be kind. People can be pleasant. They can be polite. But they cannot of themselves be good. The Bible teaches us very plainly that there is none that doeth good. Not one. Only God is good. I've said this before. I'll continue to say it. The question, why do bad things happen to good people? is kind of a non-question because there are no good people. I mean... I don't know how you're going to receive that, but it's, it's, it's the Bible. There are no good people. There's a good God. God is good. And we are only good as we reflect His character. That's it. We cannot be good of ourselves. Galatians 5 and 22 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. We need the Spirit of God resident within us to be good. We cannot be good except by the Spirit of God. Amen. God is personal. And I am so thankful for this. 
Psalm 40 and 5 says, Many, O Lord my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done, and thy thoughts which are to usward. They cannot be reckoned up in order unto thee. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more that can be numbered. Psalm 139, 17 and 18 says, How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, not unto the world, not unto mankind, but unto me, unto you. God thinks of us as individuals. Jeremiah 29 and 11 says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. God's concerned with individuals. God did so love the world that He gave. But when He hung on the cross, He thought of you. He thought of me. God loves, creates, saves, builds relationships with and works through individuals. Through you and through me. He doesn't work through mankind at large. He works through individuals. He calls individuals. He saves individuals. He loves individuals. This also represents the fact that God is not distant. He's not far off. He's not an absentee father. He's not a clockwinder God. He just wound up the universe and then left. Left us to our own devices. We see all through human history, God has been reaching out to us. Not the other way around. We've been doing the exact opposite. We've been running away from God. We've been rebelling against God. But God has ever been reaching out to us, wooing us with cords of love, drawing us back to Himself. Genesis 3, 8 and 9 says this, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. So we see Adam and Eve running from the presence of God. And then we see God in verse 9, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Running after him. Seeking him out. Where are you? It was God that created us for fellowship with Him. We didn't choose Him. He chose us. It was God that instituted a plan to bring us back into fellowship with Him after our rebellion. From that, from Genesis 3, 9 till this present moment, He's been seeking out whom He can save. He's been seeking mankind. He's been seeking you and me. It was God that all through history is reaching out to man. It's never the other way around. If you think you found God all by yourself... I used to think that because I'm the one that came to them and asked if I could come to church. I found God. Deception. No, I did not find God. God was reaching out to me since my birth. God's been wooing me. He's been sending people my way. He's been creating situations and circumstances to lead me ever closer to Him. Thank God for that. We don't find God. God finds us. 
It was God who came in the flesh for the sole purpose that He would die to make fellowship between us and a holy God possible again. Every step of the way, it was God. God is the instigator. God is the prime mover. God is the one who takes the initiative, who moves this thing forward. We are always the respondents. We are always the reactors. Never the other way around. And if we weren't so dull and so thick and so spiritually obtuse, we would understand what an awesome thing it is to have a relationship with God. And we would be the ones seeking Him. But we are obtuse and we are dull and we are thick. And we don't understand. After we're saved and we develop a relationship with Him, as we walk with Him over a period of years, we do begin to understand But not until then. Not until then. Thank God that He is a personal God. That He died for individuals. He established a relationship with individuals. Amen. God is truth. Exodus 34 and 6 says, And the Lord passed by before Him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness, and truth. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, He is the rock, His work is perfect. For all His ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is He. Psalm 31 and 5 says, Into Thine hand I commit my spirit, Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Isaiah 65 and 16 says, That he who blessed himself in the, Lord, in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from mine eyes. That God of truth is the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14 and 6 says, as confirmation, Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The very concept of truth, if you stop to think about it for a second, why is there truth? Why is there such a concept, such an idea as truth? What purpose does that serve in the universe? What purpose would that serve at all if we evolved from nothing? If we are, as the scientists say, descendants from ferns and rocks? Why would there be such a thing as truth? Why would there be such a thing as morality? Why would there be such a thing as beauty? The very concept of of truth is foreign to a worldview that denies the truth of Scripture. Or at least it should be if you were consistent with that worldview. Thankfully, they're not. They do believe in truth. They just deny the truth of Scripture. As one guy puts it, they're sitting on Jesus' lap to slap Him. The idea that there are things that are true and other things that are not true stems from our Creator. That is an attribute of who God is. Because God is truth, there is a truth in His creation. That's the only reason we have such a thing called truth. is because the God of truth created everything. 
Otherwise, there would be nothing true, nothing false. It, wouldn't, it would be irrelevant. It would be like asking how long did God exist before he created everything. There was no time before creation. It's a non-question. It's a non-issue. Truth would be a non-question and a non-issue without God. Truth is an attribute of God. It's not an attribute inherently of God's creation. It's built into God's creation because God is truth. And it reflects His Creator. Truth is an attribute of God, not man. As we reflect the character of God, as we receive truth, we have truth. We don't have truth of ourselves. We can't have truth of ourselves. I talked about being spiritually obtuse, thick, dull. Well, that applies to truth as well. Because there are some things we don't want to be true. See? And so they're not. We convince ourselves that they're not. And we're very good at that. There are some things we want to be true. And so we're going to convince ourselves that those things are true. And we are going to not, we won't even see this mountain of evidence that, that comes against it. We're going to see the one or two items that, that do seem to confirm that. And that's all we need. We're not convinced of truth because of evidence. We already have a preconceived idea of truth. We're just looking for the evidence that will confirm that. But that's not truth, folks. That's not true. What is true is Scripture. What is true is God. The, attribute, the very attribute of God is truth. He is the personification of truth. He cannot lie. If he states a fact, it's a fact, and it will happen. Error is an attribute of the enemy, not God. We see in John 8:44 Jesus speaking, "Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it." Error Lies. That's the attribute of the enemy. So if I can extrapolate just a little bit. If there is anything that comes into our minds through book, through any kind of media, through your brother-in-law, that contradicts Scripture, that is error. That is the enemy. I will continue to stress, as long as I'm here, the importance of Scripture. The absolute infallibility of Scripture. It is true altogether. There are no contradictions in it. There are apparent contradictions. I'll grant you that. But there are no realized contradictions in Scripture. None. Every word in that book is true. All the way through, it's true. And if anything contradicts it, that is false by definition. The Word of God is true because the God that spoke that Word is true. 
Hebrews 6, 17 and 18 says, Wherein God willing more abundantly to sow into the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. The point I want to make from this passage of Scripture is the immutability of his counsel. He confirmed it by an oath. And it's impossible for God to lie. He can't do it. It contradicts his very nature. When he speaks, he speaks of his own, which is truth. God is altogether true. His word is altogether true and every man a liar. If anyone comes against Scripture... If I, if anybody comes against Scripture, it's wrong. And Scripture is right. Amen. God is sovereign. Isaiah 45, 6-12 says this, That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. So the clay say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou? Or thy work, he hath no hands. Woe unto him that saith unto his Father, What begettest thou? Or to the woman, what hast thou brought forth? Thus saith the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons, and concerning the work of my hands, command ye me. I have made the earth, and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. Amen. God is altogether sovereign. Sovereign means one possessing or held to possess supreme political power. One that possesses supreme authority within a limited sphere, of an unqualified nature, having undisputed ascendancy, possessed of supreme power, unlimited in extent, enjoying autonomy. The limited sphere refers to people who are sovereign. Kings, presidents, etc. The Lord, however, is altogether sovereign. His is of an unqualified nature. He has undisputed ascendancy. He is possessed of His supreme power. His is unlimited in extent. And He does enjoy full and complete autonomy. There is none higher than God. There is none who gives God counsel. There is none who God reports to or submits to. God is the head of all things. God directs all things freely according to His royal counsel. Those things that He says must come to pass. All of reality will be rewritten if necessary. The laws of nature will be sub, uh, subdued or rewritten or canceled if necessary for God's spoken word to come to pass. For God's will to come to pass. Because He is sovereign in His creation. He is sovereign all throughout. If there's anything outside of creation, He's sovereign there too. 
God is not a fickle God and does not bind us to an arbitrary fate based on how He's feeling at the moment. That's important to understand. God is sovereign, but He's not fickle. All things happen according to His predetermined counsel, which was established before the foundation of the world. God is not fickle. He doesn't make judgments or rulings based on how He feels at the moment. He's not controlled by emotion. If you go before the judge, for example, you always want to find out who the judge is, how they ruled in the past. And you're hoping the judge is having a good day today. So they'll judge favorably. If the judge is having a bad day, or if they're tired or grumpy, the statistics state you don't have a good chance. <laughs> yeah. But God is not like that. God's sovereignty is not determined. His judgments, His rulings, His counsel is not determined by His emotion, by what's happening at the present. God has already determined those things. And they will come to pass. God's sovereignty is not to be questioned. Now, this is going to rub some people the wrong way, too. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. I wish people would get something different. Because <laughs> that one is really old. With people, you bet. That's absolutely true. Power does corrupt people. Power is one of the greatest tests one will ever face. But God's sovereignty is not to be questioned. Created beings have no right to question the Creator, and they have no basis for even doing so. What authority do you assume when you take it upon yourself to judge God? Where did you get that authority? What right do you have to do that? If you can explain that to me, I'd love to hear it. Where do you get to yourself the authority and the right to judge God? Upon what set of criteria will we judge God? On the Word of God? There's nothing higher than that. But God wrote that. So again, I'm interested. Upon what set of criteria are you, you going to judge God? Is our morality and our sense of justice superior to God's? God was wrong in doing that. God was wrong in saying that. He should have done this instead. Because I'm more superior. I'm, I have a superior morality. That kind of falls back to being spiritually obtuse. And dull and thick. Our morality is degenerate and broken. Our morality is, is shattered by sin and rebellion. Our morality, our sense of justice, is not superior to God's. It doesn't even compare. It's apples and oranges. Is our information more complete than God's? Maybe if God just knew what the situation really was, we'd be okay with this. Yeah? 
Maybe if God understood how I was feeling at the moment, maybe if God understood what the situation is here, He'd have judged differently. You think that's true? Well, God has all information. Romans 9, 19-21 says, Thou wilt say unto me then, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? In other words, isn't God sovereign? Can't he do as he chooses? And if that's all we understood about God, that He is sovereign, that He can do whatever He wants, whatever He wants, and nothing, no one can say anything about it. If that's all we knew, yeah, maybe that would be cause for concern. I could see an argument made where that would be a little bit disconcerting. How do I know He's going to do good? How do I know He's going to do the right thing? But we know more than just that He's sovereign. We know that He's good. We know that He's loved. We know that He's righteous and holy and just. He's perfect in every way. So thank God that He's sovereign. I rejoice that God is sovereign. I rejoice that He has all power and has all authority. Because He brings all that to bear for our benefit. For our salvation. For our perfection. For our provision. Whatever it is we have need of, all of that is brought to bear for us, for us, not against us. We can trust Him. You don't have a choice anyway. He's going to be sovereign whether you want it or not. But, since He is sovereign anyway, you can trust Him. That He'll use His sovereignty perfectly, justly, righteously. That doesn't have to concern any one of us, but we can rejoice in the fact that He is sovereign. All of history is set up in order according to God's design and according to God's will. We look at history from our perspective. It's past. There's nothing we can do about it. it whatever happened, happened. But as history progresses throughout time, we see events unfold. We see situations take place, both macro and micro. Every one of them were somehow, in one form or another, ordained by God, approved by God, allowed by God. Nothing happens without that. If God says no to something, it's not going to happen. Even your enemy needs permission to come against you. And God's going to tell him exact, to the exact extent that he has authority to do so in your life. Go this far and no further. And that's all, all the farther he can go. So even in that situation, in every situation that we find ourselves in, that brings me up. <laughs> there was a statement made uh, at conference uh, by the preacher. Awesome, awesome preacher. I've never heard him preach before. 
Amazing. Amazing preacher. What a, what a, what, every service was so wonderful. And he said something uh, that I, I disagreed with. And it's this, and I'll tell you why. Uh, he said, you know, some people say uh, that, yeah, my worst day serving Jesus is better than my best day in the world. Well, he said, I don't know. I can imagine some pretty good days in the world and some pretty awful days serving Jesus. I think a case could be made where there would be better days there. And I, I understand what he's saying, okay? I get that. But I have said that before, and I'm going to continue to say that. And here's why. I've been on both sides of the fence, okay? I know what it's like to not serve Jesus. I know what it's like to serve Jesus. And, yeah, what he said is true. If I won a million dollars in the world, uh, that would be a good day for me. I would feel really good. But, see, here's the thing, though. Here's the thing. Me, then, I didn't trust anyone. I didn't trust people. I had friends, but I kept them at a little bit of a distance. Because at some point, they're going to come at me. I know that, because it's happened. So I don't trust people. I'm not going to trust anyone with that money. I'm not going to trust anyone enough to to share it with someone. And if that money, as is statistically the case, goes bye-bye, and I end up in a worse situation, because I don't know how to handle a million dollars, then I'm I'm in a financial strait. And all I can depend on is me. I don't have anyone to bail me out. I sink or swim based on what I can do. And that's always in the back of my mind. Today, I can trust people. Even if they stab me in the back, it doesn't matter. It hurts, but it doesn't matter because God loves me and I trust God. He's the friend that's never going to leave me or forsake me. I love people. I have that. If something bad does happen to me, one, I'm living for God, so I know I'm here by the will of God. And two, God is walking with it through me. Through it with me. Back up, reverse. Let's go. Okay. He's walking through it with me. So that, to me, that to me is far better than even winning a million dollars in the world. Understanding the complete situation. I get what he was saying. But, and I said that to say this. When the enemy does come at us, we can have confidence that the Lord knows about it. The enemy has had to get permission to do that. And he's not going to go any farther than he's allowed to. Well, why would God do that? Why would God allow that to happen? For your benefit. Unfortunately, human beings, sometimes there's... Sometimes we have to go through the thick of it to learn something. That's how character develops. I wish I could just read a book and have godly character. I wish I could just go to a a 10-week seminar, and then I could be Christ-like. But it doesn't work like that. 
Read your books. Go to the seminars. Absolutely. There's good information there. But character develops in the hard times, the difficult situations. And God puts us there on purpose for just that reason, to develop our character, to make us Christ-like. So the sovereign God places us there for a reason. And we trust Him because He's righteous and He's love and He's just. Amen. God is jealous. Exodus 20 and 5 says, Thou shalt, bow down thy, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. That's an important distinction. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Exodus 34:14 says, For thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Nahum 1 and 2 says, God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. Well, this sounds like God is insecure. Isn't that what wives tell their husbands when they get jealous? You just, you, just, you just need to have more confidence in yourself. You just need to be more secure. Don't be so insecure. As an aside, <clears throat> wives, if you're telling your husbands that, you're digging your own grave. You're doing it to your hurt. There's a reason that we get jealous for you. It's because we love you. We made a covenant with you. Not with anyone else. We made a covenant with you. So when I get jealous and your husband gets jealous, don't start, don't start making fun of that. Don't make light of that. Now, with anything that can be taken to an extreme, I understand that. But the fact of the matter is this. God is jealous for you. God is jealous for me. And that's a good thing. Why? Because He loves us. He established His covenant with us. He's not going to break it for any reason. Not any reason at all. You can. And we have. But God will never break covenant with His people. And He is very jealous for you. When the enemy comes against you, yes, it's by His design and His purpose, but He's with you right in the middle of it. He's holding your hand. He's walking with you through it. He's jealous for you. And when you leave for someone else, that breaks His heart. When you put anything above God, and I'm not talking about bowing down to Baal or Moloch or anything like that. I'm talking about when you put entertainment above God, when you put work above God, when you put a person above God, that breaks His heart. God doesn't put anybody above you. God's not insecure. He's jealous. He's a jealous God because He loves you. That's a good thing. 
God is one. We'll start on this, but that's going to be the focus of our next lesson on this. God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. Surely you've heard this at least once. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6 says, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Isaiah 44, 6 and 8 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who is I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order before me, set in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. Colossians 2, 8 and 9 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now we understand that there is some confusion in the Christian world concerning this. The UPCI as an organization, this church as a church body, has and always will Declare that God is one. God is one. He is not three in one. He is not three equal, co-equal, co-eternal, all of that beings who take counsel together. That kind of that kind of negates the idea of sovereign, omnipotent. How can two people have all power? How can two people have all authority? You can't. You can't. And so, uh, God is one. He is one. And that is, that is important for us to understand. We're going to get more into it next week. Uh, that's going to be the focus of it. But just as a prelude, well, let me say it this way. It's important to understand what God has revealed to us in Scripture. It's important for us to understand all of it. Again, the way we worship, the way we serve God, that is all predicated on our understanding of God. We find our understanding of God in Scripture. Now, we're going to find historically, God was one initially. And then He became three. We'll go into why. We'll go into the arguments that are used. Uh, and again, at first blush, when you look at some of these scriptures, they are a little confusing. I'll grant you that. When I first came into the church, I came in as a Lutheran. The Lutherans believe in, in the Trinity. I was never taught Trinitarian anything. I just heard that word. I don't know if I was taught much of anything except in catechism. But uh, in any case, I might have been taught something. Anyway, 
The idea of doctrine was foreign to me. The idea of, of systematic theology, those kinds of things. What do we believe as a church? I couldn't have told you what we believed as a church. <clears throat> we believe the Bible. I believe the Bible. But the Bible teaches uh, one God all through, all through Old Testament, New Testament. And we're going to look at reasons why people believe that, how that came about, and we're going to look at why we believe that He is one. It's because He is one. And that is, that is a revelation of truth that some have not yet received. Okay? I find that even people who profess a strict Trinitarianism still pray in Jesus' name. Uh, they still believe that Jesus is the one, that the only way to salvation. Um, it's, it's very interesting. It's very fascinating. And um, when we're, maybe I should say this too, when we're speaking with people uh, who disagree with our stance on, on different things, it's important to disagree in love. It's important to not get argumentative, to not get, uh, don't be a jerk. I'll say it that way. Don't be a jerk. That person is someone that Jesus Christ died for. Jesus loves that person. And for whatever reason, at this moment, he has entrusted us with them. He is trusting in us to demonstrate Jesus to them. And so, as we're trying to get them to understand what the Scriptures say about certain things, do it in love. Do it in compassion. With an eye to seeing them saved. They're not the enemy. The enemy has deceived. The enemy has lied. But that's not the enemy you're speaking with. That's someone Jesus died for. Jesus wants to see them. He wants a relationship with them. That's why he sent you to them. Amen. So as we go through that, uh, as we go through all of this, let's just remember that one fact. God loves them. We need to love them. They need to be saved. Amen. Let's all stand.